Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. This morning, I have the pleasure to be joined with Fahim Al Qasmi. Uh, and he has had many roles. Currently, he's a partner at AQ&P, co-founder of Seafood Souk. He's also a non-executive director of Alethea and has held other distinguished roles, such as a member of the board of directors at Abu Dhabi Media Corporation. Good morning, Fahim. Good morning. Did I co cover it all? Uh, is, yeah, is there anything else that... That's it. No, no, it's, uh, <laughs> no not, 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 not about titles. It's more about um, a man fortunate enough to have met some phenomenal entrepreneurs and I get to work with phenomenal people. So just to elaborate a little bit on the kind of, you know, the two, two or three topics that we'll talk about, we'll discuss the current uh, COVID-19, the business climate, um, a lot of the kind of uh, things that are coming out of that, such as acceleration and digital transformation. Uh, and then we'll mm -hmm. talk about Seafood Souk and Alithia and all the kind of ideas that came from that. But just to set the scene, they are essentially part of uh, AQMP, correct? Correct. So uh, we formed AQMP a number of years ago. Uh, I started angel investing in, in a few businesses, uh, businesses that I hope uh, your viewers would have uh, visited, uh, restaurants like Happy, uh, The Surf House, uh, parkour dxp and found that there were amazing entrepreneurs building these fantastic communities around a sport or a lifestyle um, and i and i helped them set up uh, by by becoming a shareholder in that business um, and i came from a business consulting background i was in the investment world um, and that was going very well uh, so that grew into what is in essence our family office today my brothers and i um, a firm called aqmp where we are playing two roles. Um, on one side, um, we are an advisory firm from all of the work we had done in the SME space. Um, we support SMEs with corporate concerns, so predominantly corporate governance, um, how to basically have oversight and transparency in organizations. Um, but also we had done some work on transaction advisory um, for small businesses looking to sell or for medium-sized businesses looking to buy. We saw this need in, in the United Arab Emirates to have um, a small to mid-cap player. Um, in, in that space. And on the other side, with, um, you know, with, the, with the family office, we, we invest. We invest selectively um, based on an investment ethos that we have as a family. Uh, and uh, it's, been, it's been an exciting ride um, ever since the start. Interesting. So just to touch on two aspects of what you mentioned, um, angel investment is often described as, you know, the early stage, it's maybe more risk involved. Um, and you know, I'm not sure, is there structure to it? Is it usually associated with a company and, um, or have you put more structure to it now? Uh, and how do, how do you kind of see that? Uh, so angel investment is an interesting one. What we do recommend, um, especially clients that have taken on um, angel investors. Angel investors usually mean uh, retail investors, as in individuals um, that do have uh, a stake or a share uh, traditionally in, in a small but growing business. And what we had seen um, was in angel investment and then growing into a family office, if you are going to invest in a company, and let's frame an example. 
which today a friend of you comes and says, I have this great idea, but I'm going to need a little bit of money to start it. Would you invest in me? I think that is when, uh, that is how a lot of businesses start, but sometimes miss some key components to make sure that the relationship that you're about to start is on the right footing. So what, what that means is understanding legally what it means to set up the company, where it's registered, are your shares reflected, um, the shareholder agreements that it has, and then the rights and, and, and responsibilities of all the parties involved. And that is the fundamentals of corporate governance. Mm. I came from a world where we were advising corporate governance you know, for very, very large organizations, listed companies, and we realized that there was this need to talk about at least the, the core fundamentals of, of, of corporate governance um, with small businesses. And that's how we grew into AQP. So my advice is for anybody watching right now that is looking to help out a friend or is looking to find friends and family to invest in a business is to make sure that you really do have um, all of your paperwork and all of your uh, core principles in place. Do, does your firm uh, put that advice in place? Do you help with the documents and think consultancy like that? Uh, the firm started like that, specifically with, with a few companies that we're looking to start. Now our focus is, is on, on the mid-tier space. An example client is an entrepreneur that has built um, a successful business, has focused predominantly on, on, on management and, and, and revenue growth. And as that company matures, um, the relationship between the shareholders, the board, and the CEO can become quite complex. Mm. And that's where we come in and, and we support on, on engagements by helping them realize uh, that corporate governance does increase the value of your firm. Mm. And uh, by investing in corporate governance, it will either lead to uh, an opportunity for the founder of the company to step back and be a shareholder, or in a couple of cases that we've had with our clients, the opportunity to then exit and successfully sell. Interesting. What would you describe your, you mentioned your investment ethos. What are the criteria that you have around that? So we firmly believe that three values that are in the investment world today will continue to matter um, in the long run. As young investors and very small investors, let's be honest, we, we decided what we firmly believed in as a, as a company and as a, as a family uh, to be important to us, our core values, so to speak. Um, my eldest brother is, is an environmental uh, or is an advisor to, in, in the Ministry of Environment. My, my next brother down is a mathematician um, and my younger brother is in the digital space. And we sat down and, and said, what matters to the four of us? And, and basically rounded it down to the importance of the environment, uh, to the importance of, of really transparency uh, and, and, and the importance of community impact. That today in the investment world would be called ESG, environmental, social, and governance, mm. as three key pillars for uh, sustainable investment. Interesting. Yeah, um, that's amazing. I think, uh, you know, we, we do hear of trends in investment, and, and there's also a lot, of, a lot of you internationally, a lot of chat this year that even, um, even CEOs and, you know, listed companies uh, have a lot more focus on, uh, sustainable decision making on uh, things like that. Um, have you seen that come to this region? Uh, are you one of the only uh, kind of family offices that's structured like that? Um, and how do you kind of describe the current invest investor and even uh, leadership uh, uh, approach in this region uh, with regards to those trends? 
I think, let me sort of break your question into, into a number of components. Um, first, what we have found is that family offices tend to think more um, with regards to sustainability. Uh, the reason being is that families tend to think about the next generation. Mm. And therefore, if, if you place investment horizons out of your lifetime, the decision-making process and the due diligence process does change as well. So it's not about making a quick buck where we think we're going to see massive returns in, in, in three, six, nine months, mm. but rather how do we continue to build and protect a portfolio of assets um, that my two sons will one day hopefully um, you know, take forward and, and my nephews and nieces as well. So I think family offices, I would say, focus on sustainability naturally, maybe without even knowing what they do. The other side, uh, the region is very much focused on, on, on impact investing and, and specifically focused on sustainability. You only need to look at um, government policies, government initiatives, both federally and within the local government, uh, to see that the region has highlighted sustainability as, as a core component. And that doesn't necessarily mean environmental sustainability, mm. but economic sustainability. The UAE's uh, mission to diversify away from oil is a phenomenal example of, of, of sustainability in practice, that they've realized that, you know, beyond mine and your lifetime, Rich, that, you know, there will be a need to sustain a, an economy and, and it's most likely not going to be based on oil. Mm. Interesting. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of kind of shift happening as, again at the moment on that. Um, I'd just mm -hmm. like to ask another question around, you know, family businesses uh, and investment structure in the region. Uh, how would you just, is there a way to understand this in terms of, um, I think it's very interesting from a long-term point of view, but, you know, of course, some family businesses in the region would also have listed companies and, um, and that, and, you know, is it either a family business that has listed companies or a family business that's in the kind of private investment space? Um, and would, in that sense, would it be like any other part of the world or are there any other nuances that are different here? I think the, the nuances here are that um, family offices in in the region in general are are still in the first or second generation of, of their establishment. Um, looking further east and west, we've seen multi-generational family businesses. In terms of uh, exposure to privately held companies or listed companies, I think that the role of listing or the, the role of a, of a, of a regulator in, in a stock market, so to speak, is is just a form of transparency or, or sustainability. We can have listed companies where families still own, for example, a significant share in the business, mm. um, but they're now regulated and, and, and there is oversight, so to speak, from public markets. Uh, I don't think that um, we'll see that in the, in the near term. Um, by that, I mean the next sort of five years. Uh, but I do assume that, you know, with deepening of, of capital markets across the region, um, I, I hope that we will see more private businesses look to um, open up uh, and extract some of their capital by, by listing on, on both the stock market in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to get back to a, a later in the conversation about governance and, and with that context around the, the family offices as well. Um, but let's uh, jump into Seafood Souk. Can you explain what that is and how the idea came about? 
Indeed. So Seafood Souk was an idea that was born out of uh, a conversation between my co-founder, Sean Dennis, uh, and I. We have a close friend of ours that is in the aquaculture space and had noticed that he had a few challenges dealing with selling his product in the market. And I think the quote was, there must be a better way to sell fish. So Sean and I and, and, and some friends, including this gentleman, uh, got together, thought very long and hard about ways in which to create efficiency in, in the seafood supply chain, or the cold chain, because it needs to be chilled. Ah. The question, as most businesses do, start with the question, what if? And we said, what if you could sell seafood online? Think of it as the Alibaba of fish, a business-to-business e-commerce marketplace where you could um, buy products. A known fact in the region is that you know a, a significant amount of seafood product that, that arrives here comes from overseas. So we thought we could innovate by doing something a little bit different. Traditionally, a supplier of seafood would import fish or seafood products, put it in a warehouse. That product has a seven to 12 day shelf life and hope that their sales team would sell that in time. Our just-in-time model argued that if people were buying online, we could order the fish there and then, and in 36 hours have it delivered directly from the airport to the customer. Mm. We took the idea, we started the company, um, raised a, a small amount of funding um, that was led by my family office, AQMP, uh, to, 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 to found the company, um, and fortunately signed a, a, a partnership, a strategic partnership with uh, Emirates Airlines, uh, to help us bring in with EK Sky Cargo, um, bring in that product. Uh, we then grew the company, launched, um, and today we're very proud to say that we have built a product on top of that. And that product is SFS Trace, or Seafood Soup Trace. Mm. Because we know that the fish that came out of, for example, a, a salmon farm in Scotland, uh, left the salmon farm, went to the airport at a particular time, was on EK028, for example, from Glasgow, mm. arrived in Dubai airport at six in the morning, and then went from there directly to the client, we have complete oversight of the cold chain. Mm. So what we promise you is the source and the transportation and the cold chain as it was kept chill for that entire process. Mm. Um, and that I think was an exciting proposition for, for seafood buyers. Um, because seafood unfortunately is, is one of those uh, industries where there is unfortunately a very large amount of fraud. Mm. I'll give you an example. If uh, and forgive forgive me for the viewers that are fasting that I that I talk about food, but the next time you order a steak, if you were to ask the waiter where that that steak came from, I'm pretty sure they could find out the name of the farm very quickly. But when it's that piece of salmon, unfortunately, we've almost commoditized the product that we think all salmon is the same. Uh, it is not, and uh, us as a company, as Seafood Souk, provide transparency and traceability for business buyers that want to access the freshest and best quality seafood. Wow, there's so much there. <laughs> um, it's incredible. To, first, <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. I, first of all, I think, you know, there's many parts of that story that people can relate to, especially, you know, knowing we're obviously in, in Dubai, in the UAE, and uh, we can see the sea. Uh, and, you know, food is a big part of the industry here. Um, when, when you're coming up with an idea, do you, 
you know, you obviously start, you mentioned you start with why and you're looking to solve something. At what point, uh, you know, do, do you kind of try and kind of keep it simple and you try and solve one thing? Because um, what you described there is part uh, transparency in the food industry uh, and can relate to blockchain tracking. Part of it is related to uh, freight and uh, transport and last mile. Um, part of it is in e-commerce and then part of it also is in direct to consumer around foods. Uh, so is this sort of, are you, is there a lot that you're doing and um, how do you kind of break that down to uh, kind of day to day? So the approach we took was very different. Number one, we realized that we weren't going to play in the direct to consumer. We did it directly business to business only. The second thing is, is we focused on one seafood, uh, one product, which was seafood. Hmm. Um, Jack Ma famously said, if you can do it in seafood, you can do it in anything because it's the most highly valuable, highly perishable product. Hmm. Did they, did, that's Jack Ma from Alibaba. Did he, uh, was he successful in seafood as well? No, they haven't, they haven't, uh, they have not uh, taken a dip into seafood, so to speak, a little bit through one company in, in, in China, but um, internationally there had not been uh, something like this that had happened. So you picked the, hard, uh, the hardest one, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 not, not, not necessarily. I think actually the way I, I describe it to, to our shareholders, our stakeholders, and our partners is that I have, a, I have a particular viewpoint on tech, and what I'm about to say will probably make some people uh, watching a little bit upset, so forgive me. Okay. I think there's a lot of copycat technology. I think a lot of people look for a technological solution that exists somewhere else in the world and then adapt it hmm. uh, to make a regional version with the aim of um, being bought out by, by this said party. Hmm. Our viewpoint when we started this was we had to realize what the United Arab Emirates was very good at, and that is supply chain. We're a trading hub for the entire world, mm. and specifically in seafood, if you're sitting in a hotel in the Maldives eating a piece of salmon, the likelihood, with certainty I can say, that salmon left Europe, went through the United Arab Emirates, and then went to the Maldives. There is no place in the world where this much fish travels through. Because of that, seafood soup does predominantly one thing, improve the supply chain of fish. And there's nowhere else in the world that you could build a seafood soup. And it's our mission to prove that you can build technology for the world from the region. Mm. And that's how we simplified our goal into one, one, one core um, aim how to do that we identified a marketplace would be best and a natural outcome of having full oversight of the supply chain is that we can then provide traceability and because of that we're actually working on a few uh, very very interesting projects in the near term um, one of which has been announced and therefore i can share it and um, we are now digitizing traditional brick and mortar uh, seafood markets so seafood markets in the country uh, we're actually starting with Suga Jabail in Sharjah. Mm. Uh, it's going to be the first digitized seafood market um, in the region where you will be able to be uh, sitting in your home in an area like Rahmania in Sharjah and be able to order fish from the seafood market with full traceability of where it arrived from, how long it was at the seafood market, and when it arrived at your doorstep. 
So this is this is for a consumer or for the restaurant business and, and the retail business as well? So in essence, as a B2B platform, we will be supplying Subajabel with fish as we currently do already. Mm. And Subajabel themselves will have their B2C okay. um, platform that they will then be providing fish. And we hope uh, soon that we'll be doing the same, obviously, in the Emirate of, of, of Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi and Ajman and, and uh, Omar Kuwain and, and Ras Al Khaimah and Fujairah as well. How, how kind of established, it's, it's great that you talked about the kind of history of, of the UAE as, you know, in terms of ports and, and uh, fishing as well. Um, how, for those who kind of don't know, how regulated is it? Is it how structured is it? Is it done by each emirate? Is there, are there governing bodies? And, you know, how, how have you been able to kind of um, navigate that per se? And also what's the kind of regulation for around technology and new entrants? So the seafood industry from a, from a trading perspective is obviously very highly controlled, um, both by the local municipalities um, and obviously the Ministry of Environment as well. And that includes local fisheries. So we have to split um, seafood into three buckets. Fish that arrives from abroad, local fish that is caught in our oceans and, and seas, and, lo- and um, local fish that is farmed, mm. uh, farmed that exists in this country. And we uh, are basically supporting all of those uh, sort of three segments by increasing the amount of data that is available, reducing the cost of trading it, which is one of the goals of the UAE's food security strategy, um, diversifying sources of of getting food from abroad, which is another pillar, Mm. um, and and, and applying technology to to really raise the bar in terms of the information available. That impacts consumer rights, that impacts um, protecting our oceans, uh, it reduces waste, which is which is a hugely important um, goal of ours. Um, you know, forgive me, this is a global statistic. This is not, um, you know, solely in, in the United Arab Emirates nor the region. Um, but we are overfishing our oceans. I think this is a given uh, globally, and yet we still see 15 to 20 percent wastage in the supply chain mm. across the globe. So not only are we overfishing our oceans, is that we're taking that fish and we're wasting it. So our job is to make sure that if we can help. Um, control or at least raise the, the visibility in the supply chain, we can reduce that wastage and also hopefully identify what we're catching and whether or not there is demand for it. Fascinating. Uh, I th- yeah, I think that's very interesting in terms of endangered species. And uh, But from a tangible point of view, how can technology help? Uh, is it just about transparency or how, how can what you're doing uh, impact in terms of decision-making process? So one of the most important things for us is is data. Um, we're working on a project um, with a country in the region. Um, unfortunately, I can't get into details. Where we are helping digitize the uh, collection of seafood that is that is arriving in the country. With that, it will be fed into a marketplace that then sells globally. So tangibly, by sharing the information throughout the supply chain what we can tell fishermen to do is almost guide them on what fish to fish. Mm. If a particular product is overcooked, prices are reduced. So from a socioeconomic impact, not only are you harming the environment by fishing too much of that particular product, but then selling it for cheap and the fishermen aren't making any income. So I think in in terms of one of the reasons, I guess, why we focused on, on seafood is that it is a sector that is so important socioeconomically um, and from a food security perspective across the entire region, um, whether you are talking about that in, in, in Kuwait or in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia 
um, the Sultanate of Oman or the United Arab Emirates or Bahrain. Mm. It's such such an important um, industry sector that uh, we hope we can support policymakers with by by giving them information. Interesting. Um, I know you're passionate uh, about uh, you know sailing and um, being out at sea personally, but just for those uh, who don't know much about fishing and, and how that works, um, typically with supply and demand, you can kind of control production uh, of goods, or if we're thinking of Alibaba, etc. Um, how much of fishing, though, is uh, related to what, what fish are in the sea? Or can you actually control what you can catch? Yeah, so the, the Ministry of the Environment is very um, uh, prudent and, and very uh, strict on uh, seasons for, for catching particular fish. Um, Slafi, Shari, and Hamur are three species that are in high demand. Mm. Um, but we monitor our, our seas very carefully um, and make sure that uh, we are not fishing during times that they reproduce. Um, we're very excited, though, that because of the demand for those species and because of um, the sort of risk of exploitation, uh, we've seen investments in, in the Emirates of Abu Dhabi, for example, into the UAE's first Hamur farm. Uh, farmed seafood, I have to speak to our, um, our, our, our viewers today that farmed seafood is not bad. Um, and there's a discussion about whether farmed or, or wild caught is, is, is better. I think the important thing to know is the source of, of the farm and, and, and the information of where that fish has come from. Mm. Uh, that's what we're aiming to do in Seafood Soup is provide that choice and that transparency in the hands of business buyers and therefore their consumers. Uh, an interesting statistic, 2019 was the, a very important year. It was the first year that the world consumes more fish that is farmed than fish that is caught. Wow. And, and therefore, just making sure people know what they're eating is, is extremely important. One in five, this is a horrific statistic, so forgive me, um, but globally one in five pieces of seafood is mislabeled um, by either what it is or when it was caught. Wow. Um, so many things we can talk about in terms of the environment and the food industry in general. Uh, what are your views on the trends for the kind of uh, non-animal food, so to speak, or the companies that are uh, innovating in plant-based uh, foods uh, and this region in relation to what you're doing? Uh, I can speak as a I can speak as a as an investor and a co-owner of a restaurant um, with Happy. Um, Paul Frangi is a is a very talented chef, and and we discuss. Uh, you know, diet and and and, and what we're eating as as, an, as you know, key key sort of theme of discussion. Yeah. But I have a particular viewpoint, and this is a personal viewpoint. Uh, I think we go through a lot of uh, discussions on 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 trends in eating habits. Um, but I have lived my life at least uh, by just really caring about the the product and and where it comes from, mm. making sure it's as natural as possible. Um, therefore, you know, best quality fish you can eat. Um, the best quality meat that, that you can eat, um, understanding seasonality and, and, and fresh uh, fruit and vegetables. Um, I'm half German, so I spend I spend most of my summers in Germany, where, um, especially in the village that we, we live in, we, we don't live in a big city, um, you know, people tend to focus on eating seasonally. So that's, that's my personal e ethos and, and, and how I eat. Mm. I think cultured food and lab-grown meat um, is a new area that we're looking at. I do understand the environmental impact that means for, for reducing meat consumption. Um, I'm on the fence about whether or not I personally see that being, being a, a huge growth 
um, in terms of uh, an industry sector. But what I will say is this, is that you know, I, I do think we eat uh, too much meat today um, uh, by, by comparison to our, to our, to our, um, our forefathers, so to speak. Mm. And I can give you a small anecdote. Um, you know, my, my family, uh, my Emirati family uh, you know, from Sharjah, um, I hear stories of history of what it was like. And mm. I once asked my grandmother how often they used to eat meat. And she said they would only eat meat um, if they knew or they would slaughter a goat and, and only if they knew there were enough mouths to feed and they were celebrating. Wow. And to this day, my grandmother really doesn't eat that much meat. Mm. Um, we've gone from that to having refrigeration, consuming a lot of meat, um, and therefore, you know, an easy thing to do for the environment um, is, is, you know, have a meat-free day or, or be, a, be a vegetarian on the weekends or in the weekdays. And just lower that consumption. Interesting. Um, selfishly, selfishly, I do eat a lot of seafood. Having grown up in the United Arab Emirates, I, uh, I I eat a lot of seafood. Yeah, uh, fascinating. So the, there's, a, I think there's a meat-free May trend coming up now. Like, uh, oh. yeah, <laughs> like Veganuary, if I'm pronouncing it right, Veganuary. Uh, yeah. So I think that that's we can people can look at that as well for the uh, starting uh, next day tomorrow, day after. Um, so just kind of. Uh, so basically what I'm trying to get at is that you're not dependent on um, demands for seafoods going up or down. Your, your business model is almost uh, part, part of the technology stack and ecosystem. And if there are consumer trends at you know, uh, point of sale with, with restaurants like Happy, if people are uh, not consuming as much fish, the, the kind of purpose of uh, your, your business uh, can still... Um, you know, can still achieve what you'd like to achieve. Yeah, I think if, if we break down, like you know, let's start at, at the at the industry sector as a whole. Um, the regional seafood industry is worth about three point eight billion dollars, and that's from the amount of fish that we consume and, and the amount of fish that we also sell for large aquaculture and and and, and our catch that is exported uh, across the world. In that, the groups of clients that we have are uh, holica, hotels, restaurants, and cafes. We have distributors, people that do traditionally distribute fish that still buy from us. We have a group uh, of retailers, um, so your supermarkets and your grocery chains and your hypermarkets that sell fish. Um, we also have uh, processors, a great client of ours, um, and almost a, a strategic partner of ours is a, is a company called Salmontini. They're, they smoke um, salmon and, and they have a, a restaurant as well. And um, can, but they have been... You can, order, sorry, you can also order to your home as well at the moment. On, correct, yeah, Salmontini yeah, launched a B2C platform. Um, I can assure you that they have the best quality fish in the country because you know, we, we know exactly where they bring it from and, and we help them do that. Um, and soon enough, we're really excited that our QR code SFS Trace will soon be on their products. Wow. So you'll be able to be in the supermarkets and, and choose which smoked salmon and, and when it was smoked and when it was caught and, and where it came from. Wow. Um, so the processors and, and, and are, are an extremely important um, client sector of ours. And then last but not least, markets, which are the traditional seafood markets that we've got. What we've noticed is um, you know, people still consume fish, uh, you know, uh, specifically in these um, testing times, uh, you know, people don't stop eating fish. It's just where they're eating fish is different. Hmm. So we saw, obviously, with hotels and restaurants, 
um, demand coming down a little bit, um, but saw an uptake in markets and with groceries. Mm. Uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, it's a, fortunately we're thriving in these unfortunate times is, is the line that I use. Yeah. Uh, we saw, two, we had 270% growth um, in a month. Wow. Uh, of, yeah, and um, it's been a testament to our hypothesis. It's proven that digitizing a supply chain um, is effective, especially in times when those supply chains are being reshaped mm. or are being. We could still bring in products. Um, we could still be bring in products from around the world, uh, and therefore um, people turned to us and started buying more from us. Fascinating. A nice segue into these unfortunate times or these challenging times that you mentioned, the COVID nineteen. So. Um, uh, we, we, you joked uh, before we were chatting about what member of the C-suite uh, had the biggest impact on digital transformation uh, is COVID-19. Just in, There are lots of statistics around the acceleration. Um, how much of that do you think it's um, acceleration because we're working at home or, we're, or our behaviours have changed? How much of it is there to stay and how much of it has happened... Um, reactionary have companies adapted or is it because uh seafood souk had been building the products for over a year now or so that you were kind of ready to meet demand i think um that when it comes to this expertise i'm very fortunate i'm, I'm an executive director of a, a firm called thc uh, hybrid communications they were a strategic consultancy sort of hybrid between uh, communication and, and, and public affairs. And um, Guy Taylor, a partner there, and uh, put, put it very well. Digital transformation has happened now. I think what COVID-19 has taught is that everybody needs a digital communication channel today. Whether or not you are speaking to your consumers, your, uh, your teammates and your employees, your shareholders, your stakeholders, everybody needs to learn very quickly, or has learned now, that we need to communicate digitally. So the trends from working from home to purchasing and delivering things digitally, the proof is that you know we need this now more than ever, and most companies that are still thriving today have, have moved to that. I think the important thing to focus on during these times is that we lived a, for you know a very long time with communication traditional communication channels that were were quite common trade shows, picking up the phones, physical meetings, and then emails and phone calls were, were there as well. When you are now being tested by, by COVID-19, it highlights the importance of very strategic communication, the ability to maintain communications digitally with your shareholders, with stakeholders and your partners, that includes the regulators, with your teammates, um, with your clients, and for those that had not invested in it, now is the time to really invest in it. One of the, I'll give you a very, very clear example. One of the most important things to invest in is your sense of purpose as a company. Mm. Why do you exist? And making sure that people understand that you are there. For somebody that was ticking along and not communicating very proactively or strategically, they'll now be tested in, in making sure that they, they have a, a share of a very, very, very busy space that is the internet. Um, and digital communication. So it's it's one of those areas that for me, I, I turn to the experts that I unfortunately get to work with um, that, that help me guide both 
myself um, and the portfolio of companies that I've invested in um, to navigate through communicating when traditional forms of communication are no longer available to us. Amazing. So it, it kind of um, almost by default, uh, your your thesis, your view on the, the unprecedented times is a positive one because it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's aligned with what your your mission and what you're trying to achieve in terms of, uh, yeah, the ethos of your investments. I think, I think in, in terms of, I, I won't say this has been easy for everybody, you know, it's not like uh, everything has gone well, it's, you know, and, and I really do feel for, for a lot of business owners today that are, um, that are struggling, that are reassessing, um, that are probably um, going to go through what is their biggest challenge um, of, of, of our lifetime. Uh, I think businesses will reassess a lot of um, a lot of their core assumptions and their business model mm. um, based on this, um, and it will be uh, a, a great opportunity to learn. I think for those you know young investors or young people that are just getting into the workforce or, or, or starting in their jobs or starting their companies today, um, I would really recommend that that we learn from this. Uh, I was I had started my career just before 2008, and, and there was a lot of lessons learned there. Mm. Uh, and this is another challenge that we're being faced with. So just to make sure, for those that are receiving information and feedback from the market, whether from their companies or, or, or from their stakeholders, is to sometimes take a step back and say, what lesson have we learned from this? And me personally, I, I recommend you write it down, because my fear is that three, four years from now, we may have forgotten about mm. what just happened. Um, and, and very diligent, very diligent on 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 note taking and, and and reflecting on hmm. um, you know some of the things that have happened. Yeah, because you know as soon as the kind of the health aspect of uh, this are eventually, hopefully that there's a vaccine and um, things improve and there isn't a, a risk in the future that uh, we learn other aspects uh, as well. Um, from a, your partner and you, what's what's the kind of background, uh, Sean, and, and you in terms of technology, and what's the investment that you've made? Because from what I understand, a lot of what Seafood Seek does is a, is a tech uh, aspect um, in terms of almost blockchain, SaaS level, um, you know, digital uh, transforming uh, fishing industries. Uh, the, the, how many engineers are there? And, and how have you done that? And you know, how valuable is that sort of uh, product that you've built? Sure. Um, so in terms of background, you know, I come from corporate governance consulting um, uh, sort of background. Uh, Sean uh, was at a previous startup. He was an entrepreneur in residence and a mentor at uh, Dubai Future Accelerators. Ah. Um, his last company is a company called Loyal. I do enterprise blockchain enterprise solutions for loyalty points. Um, it's not exactly what I'm an expert in, but I, <laughs> I know what it means. Um, in essence, it's a um, distributed ledger for ledger for people to trade loyalty points within platforms and, and manage loyalty schemes. Mm. Um, so your airline loyalty points or your um, retail loyalty points. This is or the hotel loyalty points that they're almost the infrastructure layer for those. In terms of what we've built and what we've invested in, uh, I think the core thing we've invested in, we have a phenomenal team. I, I cannot stress enough about um, how fortunate I feel every day to work with great people. 
the team are young, driven, dynamic, um, and they have built some awesome technology. Uh, the core technology is the marketplace. Some people may think that that is quite simple, but when you're looking at a very unique uh, suite of products like seafood, there are a lot of nuances that are quite seafood specific. Mm. On top of that, then it's integrating it into a cold chain, integrating that into the custom handlers at the source airport or the airline or when it arrives in, in, in the United Arab Emirates and when it gets delivered to the client. There are a lot of, um, lot of little sort of touch points that need to be innovated. So yes, a large portion of our team is a, is a tech team. I'm very proud to say that um, one of the members of the team um, who built SFS Trace, the entire traceability technology, hmm. um, graduated of the American University of Sharjah. Amazing. You know, so this is local talent. These are people that are um, so interested and driven to build um, you know, this team and this, and this company with us. Um, which comes back to our ethos, which is building technology from the region for the world. Amazing. Um, the other side is obviously we, we invest a lot in our relationships, uh, the relationships with our buyers, the relationships with our sellers. In building a marketplace, the challenges of building a marketplace is the chicken and egg. You're, you're trying to encourage sellers to list their platform on, on your platform, and they say, okay, who's going to buy? And you go to the buyers and you say, okay, please you know, buy from our platform. And they say, what have you got listed? So I think you know, a challenging thing with marketplaces is, is building that. Um, but it's been uh, a great adventure, um, both uh, speaking to uh, salmon farmers in, in Scotland that are so proud of their product, mm. um, or um, mussel farmers in New Zealand that really want to showcase so much more than what just shows up on a packet or on a menu in a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for they, you know, put into their product. And similarly here, whether you're talking about Fish Farm UAE that has um, uh, the uh, sea bass and sea bream farms and the salmon farms in Jebel Ali and, uh, or Emirates Fish Farms that have, has their Hamur product, um, they're so proud of this amazing thing they've created, they really want to showcase it. So you know, those relationships are extremely important and things we're proud of. Um, obviously, from there, we're building more technology. Um, the export platform we're building for a country in the region is going to be very exciting. Um, the digital marketplace for brick and mortar seafood markets are really exciting. Um, and then we're looking at more products, hopefully down the line, um, in our in our tech uh, in our tech suite. Fascinating. Um, I'm conscious that I'd like to talk about the corporate governance and the other uh, company that you're involved in, um, and I think we could have a whole other episode just on that. Uh, but I, I think just to kind of conclude on technology, because uh, we could go into it in a lot more detail, essentially, um, Seafood Souk is living proof, uh, especially with the uh, recent upsurge in, in demand, that you've been able to build uh, probably, uh, and correct me, but a cost-effective um, local technology product, uh, yeah, basically locally here. Correct, yeah, and we're very, very sort of proud that with the country focusing on, on being a hub for, for technology around the world, um, we have to invest in our local champions. And, mm. and for that, it's, it's new ideas, um, people uh, sort of raising the bar and challenging themselves to do something completely groundbreaking, well-researched, but you know, to, to say to themselves, what if, and then run down that rabbit hole and, mm. and hopefully come up with fantastic like it could give, give me some ideas as well so I, I like that approach to this region 
Amazing. So can we touch on corporate governance and Alethea, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and the idea around that product? So uh, we, as AQMP, you know, our, our bread and butter is corporate governance. Uh, we're really excited to be able to advise in that space and help um, small and, and medium-sized businesses focus on areas of corporate governance. Uh, we do believe that it's an important part of doing due diligence on a company as well. So there has been some interest and hopefully some more in the future from foreign investors that want to perhaps invest in a company and would like a, a bit of, I won't call it an audit, but at least a little bit of due diligence on a company's uh, corporate governance. I think I have had a particular infatuation with, with the subject for, for most of my career. For those that are listening, corporate governance is not a set of legal documents. Uh, corporate governance is the set of rules, responsibilities, and the culture around the interplay between your shareholders, your board of directors, and, and your CEO, and the rest of the organization. And the way I usually describe it is um, around one of the first companies ever created in the world. Um, and you know my love of sailing, so I will use this one, but it's the East India Company. Uh, okay. And the East India Company uh, had what they had, um, what they called participants. And they asked participants to invest in this company in 1500. And that company would be um, managed by what they called the board of governors. They would pull the money together, build a ship, and then hire a captain to sail that ship to the east to trade in the Malaccas and in India and, 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 and across Asia. Today, those three roles are, are mimicked in your shareholders, your board of directors, and your CEO. And there were rules that were written. I read a lot of history on the East Indian Company. There were rules that were written about what the board of governors should do and how they should act and what stature they should be. As. And then the, the job of the captain and what he was allowed to do. Mm. And then the participants as shareholders had certain rights on how much they would get as a return on their investment. Today, those interplays are just as important. In listed markets, they are governed um, by, by policies and regulations. But in the private sector, a lot of people don't invest in it. And we're really excited about helping them invest in that for, um, for the, the core reason that good governance equals value. Right? A well-governed and transparent company is more valuable. You will make more money, you will be valued higher, and that's what we're doing. When did they practice, the East India Company, forgive me, I'm not an expert, but maybe 17th, 18th century London and uh, copied as well in Netherlands and became the first Correct. type of globalization. But did they practice Correct. good governance or were you now in hindsight able to spot flaws? I, I, looked at it, I mean, for a company that was established in 1500, it was, it's very, it's fascinating. I mean, I can go on, I can do another episode solely on, my, on the fascination around that. Um, they, they, they did practice governance. Was it good governance for the time? Um, would you agree with the principles today? The, the board of governors had the majority of the power of the company. Um, that was how it was set up. They decided what happened. The participants, the shareholders, had very few rights. So the board of governors, for example, could reinvest the money back into the company and not pay dividends, and that was their decision. Um, the participants could not change the board of governors, for example, that you could do today if you had enough shareholding, you could appoint a member of the board. Um, an interesting thing that I always tell companies, though, is that um, the captain is the one that steers the ship. The board of governors stayed on the shore, and, and the captain was the one that sailed the boat. Mm. That's a similar relationship today, where boards of directors have to remember that their CEO is the one steering the company or steering the ship. So mm. that's just a, a little bit of insight into 
my, my weekend readings. Um, coming back to corporate governance, the way I explain it, and you know, it is an education process, I tell people very often that corporate governance is as good as it is tested. It is not a science. It really comes down to every company is unique, every manager is, is different, and therefore bad governance is very easy to point at. And I only pointed one particular private equity firm and one particular healthcare group to highlight in the region that bad governance can, can cause a lot of problems. And unfortunately, my, my, my view is, and I'm known to be honest and direct, without more investment into corporate governance, good governance and transparency, mm. uh, we're going to see more breaches of ethics. We're going to see more um, sort of uh, bad actors, so to speak, uh, in, in, in the business world. Do One of the easiest... Can, can we mention, so NMC Health, can we, do you think that this is part of the maturity and do you think that this can be learned from and do you think that good examples can come out of it? I, I have to be very clear here that in this particular case, we're talking about a company that wasn't listed in the United Arab Emirates. Mm. No other reason. Mm. They operated here. They were listed abroad. Um, so it wasn't our regulations. It wasn't anything particular to do with the region. It was the fact that there was a, a lack of transparency with the organization and despite the requirements of the regulators in, 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 in London, um, they still managed to get away with what they, well, they didn't get away with in the end, but they still did what they did. Hmm. And I think that to me is extremely important to highlight here is this is when I talk about corporate governance, it's I don't think it's an issue. Yeah. Completely. And one of the easiest ways to manage or an, a very interesting initiative that can have very high impact very quickly for an organization is ethics and compliance. What we call that is a is a is a almost a, 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 an initiative that can be driven top down, a governance initiative that can be driven top down into an organization. And what that means is, it very very quickly is that you as an employee or you as a team member have the right to raise a compliance um, report if you see something that you don't believe to be ethical in the organization. Nice. And in history, that was done through hotlines. You could pick up the phone and call the compliance team. It would be done through um, letters, you know, long before email. And today it would be done on email. There are not, there is no form of um, anonymity in any of those traditional mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And today we're all operating on apps and on our smartphones. And because AQMP was known to be uh, an advisor in corporate governance and helping companies to do it, we were approached by this company, Alethea, that said, we've built this technology, we've implemented it in South Africa, and now we want to bring it to the region. Would you be interested in having a look? Uh, in essence, Alethea is an app that is um, a truly anonymous whistleblowing app that companies can implement to increase the transparency and, and, and ethics and compliance functions of their organizations. How it would work is this. For um, your organization as a media company, you would pay, as a SaaS model, a very small fee per year to have access to Aletheia's platform. Mm. We would then give you a company code unique only to your organization. Your employees and your team members would get given that code and asked to download the Aletheia app. And whoever you appointed, Richard, as your head of compliance would have a dashboard to manage those complaints mm. or um, requests or, or reports. And if somebody, for example, and God forbid that you ever have to deal with 
compliance issues, but somebody was walking down the hall and they said they saw somebody, you know, receiving a kickback from an advertiser, God forbid. Hmm. Yeah, it never happens said, in, in, in any, any part of the world, yeah. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that, you know, the, the likelihood of somebody reporting that for reasons of anonymity means they wouldn't necessarily report it. But through an app that takes no personal information, it's completely encrypted. Amazing. They would log into the app and send a report and say, look, I saw this. And the compliance officer could then manage that communication to find out and investigate the case. Anonymity is the first step to it. And the reason that AQMP ended up investing in Aletheia was because it was implemented in South Africa at a very large technology company. And uh, under a, a different brand name that was in, in, in South Africa called Expose It. We renamed it Aletheia when, when, when we brought it to the region for the world. Mm. Um, and in the first sort of uh, year of implementation, $78 million of fraud was um, raised. Wow. In, can, in, can I just yeah. clarify a, a point that I'm struggling to understand on this? If In that scenario, in that example, and if, if the organization, and kind of related to what you talked about in corporate governance and the captain... Um, leading compliance if if you practice an, a degree of transparency or you know whether it's radical or whether it's the normal degree of transparency and if you if you are if you do have good compliance uh, standards in place then why the need for whistleblowing and animos uh, and, and, and anonymity yeah <laughs> why the, why the need, yeah anonymity yeah uh, the reason is, is that, you know, when you look at it at um, an organization level, organizations are inherently complex. Now, uh, let's take a very, very large firm today. Uh, any firm that you want that has multiple departments across multiple geographies, uh, that has thousands of employees. The ability to be transparent and compliant for every single employee is you extremely might, challenging. You might miss something, yeah. And there's checks and balances in place. What you need to do is empower your, your, your workforce or your team members to take compliance into, into you know, their own hands, so to speak, and give them a voice and the ability to raise it in a safe environment. Hmm. Um, so uh, the EU, for example, has recently issued a, a whistleblowing policy that any company over a certain number of employees in Europe has to have a whistleblowing function. Hmm. Um, and the reason is, is that uh, the, the workforce needs to know that they can raise issues if they see them. Unfortunately, it's the case that we do have bad actors in, in, in society and they work for companies. Yeah. Uh, and the ability to, make, to provide a check and balance is extremely important. In the best cases, if you, if you allow me, in the best cases of corporate governance, um, the compliance team in a large organization doesn't actually report to the CEO. They usually report to uh, the audit committee at the board level, um, because if the CEO is doing something wrong, you have to be able to ensure that of people course. can raise ethics and compliance um, cases. Interesting. So just the positioning of it, because, for example, if I'm looking to this product, uh, I'm bringing it on board for Augustus or our company, I might think, oh, um, is, it, is there a need for this cost? Is it positioned as whistleblowing? But what I actually might need is, yes, I would need this software um, and the transparency around it, but what I also need is training on ethics and code of ethics and uh, responsibility. Is that provided as well? No, that's, so that's one of the reasons that um, 
uh, AQ&P uh, sort of invested in the platform. AQ&P is a, as an advisory firm, that's what we do. Mm. Um, and then people say, okay, that's great. So we have an ethics and compliance um, policy and we have a, a compliance function now in our organization. Mm. How do we implement it? And then for us, we realize that this could be an add-on um, to be able to do it. And for a small company, I mean, we're talking about $1,500 a year. Uh, it's not mm. a huge amount of cost. And in terms of, of use cases, We've seen a huge interest in obviously large organizations that that understand compliance already and see this as a more effective way on top of their uh, uh, hotlines and their email. But also, uh, we've seen interest from companies that have a huge amount of uh, of their team members out in the field in 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 dangerous situations. Mm. Uh, not necessarily very. Dangerous. I mean, construction, um, in engineering, in manufacturing. Because there is a there is a an application for Alethea as a health and safety um, compliance tool, is that if a, a a team member working in a factory sees something that could potentially endanger somebody's life, yeah, or endanger somebody's health, um, or could cause injury, that they're also empowered to be able to raise that to the most senior levels in the organization and say, today on the factory floor, for example, I saw X, and I would really like to make sure that this is covered because it's a risk. Yeah. Um, it's a, a very, very interesting use case of how this idea was actually formed by my, 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 my co-founder, so to speak, uh, now, or, or the CEO of the company, Craig. Um, the company was actually formed out of an idea to anonymously raise um, bullying in schools. Wow. So Alithi actually has a, has, a, has a brand name underneath it called Bravely, um, and, and that's actually where um, this all started, was allowing um, students in schools to anonymously raised to their teachers in the school if they had spotted bullies um, and to be feel safe that they could could raise the issue to the school mm. um, so for us that's almost a, um, a CSR or, or, or a function that we do to try to sort of support people um, with, with 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 schools we haven't had any schools here um, as of yet but hopefully soon and, and bravely is, is obviously an important um, important uh, mission that we have there as well yeah, I think it's it's fascinating, really. Again, we could talk at length about it. You know, a lot of times people think of corporate governance in terms of people intentionally do things wrong or um, someone comes forward as a whistleblower and it's all crowded around legal and it's all it's all painted in a, in a bad scenario. And even if some on the other side, if you hear of a business story where something goes wrong and there's crisis management, and the company doesn't take responsibility, but all of these things, uh, with the with the the right compliance uh, things in in place, and what what you basically what you're telling us about today is a cost effective way for companies to kind of put that in place. Yeah, I think you know. Let me give you a, an example. There's an article coming out soon. If if your viewers look out for it, called "Why We Need a New Word for Corporate Governance," is because it is usually associated in a negative context. Mm. Let me quickly give you a, an idea of how positive corporate governance can be. Let's say, for example, you are a local e-commerce player that uh, had a marketplace uh, and uh, you were B2C. And you may or may not have been acquired by a company listed in the NASDAQ that was also doing the same thing globally, right? I'm laughing because of the, 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 the kind of... N the non-naming of these uh, non -naming made, made of companies, yeah. Fiction companies, yeah. So um, this large U.S. 
company listed in, in, on the NASDAQ comes in and buys a small player that does the same thing that it does globally. Yeah. The company that's listed on the NASDAQ is very, very heavily regulated because that's the nature of listed markets around the world. And when they acquired this company here in the UAE, they needed to know that this company would become a subsidiary and in becoming a subsidiary would need to operate the same way that a listed company does. Hmm. Now, the company that was acquired may not have invested in corporate governance at an early stage and therefore would have to have a lot of changes happen for them to disclose their financials on time, to implement whistleblowing, to have hmm. a compliance function. These are things that regulators require, right? And in doing so, the company in the United States, let's call them Amazon, may or may not have identified a cost that they would have had to invest to turn this company here in the UAE around. And that's where corporate governance investing early um, makes sense. So going to Seafood Souk, for example, um, the board of Seafood Souk is 60% independent. That means they're not shareholders of the company, nor are they involved in the company in any way, shape, or form. They are there solely to provide oversight and, and, and give people um, comfort and, and, and faith in and, and oversight and transparency into investing in the company. We operate Seafood Souk from day one as if we are listed, because if somebody does one day mm. want to buy us, we know that our value will be higher yes. because uh, we're already operating like that. Fascinating. So even, you know, what you're, how you're, you're telling a story and you're p packaging this product in a way that appeals to someone who might be interested in exiting and not having a less, less of a red tape or, and a cost that you know, um, a team of lawyers would put on you as the kind of company being inquired at the time and might actually harm an exit or delay an exit if, if you kind of haven't put these things in place. I mean, I'm, I'm also, you know, yes, we advise on transactions, so exits exits are exciting for AQP, mm. um, but also exits for management. And I think we have to remember that you don't need to sell your company to, to stop running it. Mm. If a few years from now, you said to the team at Augustus, you said, look, I'm going to retire. I'm, I'm going to buy a sailboat and sail across the world. Um, I'm going to hire a manager to manage my business and take my place, be the new CEO, and I will remain a shareholder and sit on the board. My question to you is, what would you want in place as a shareholder to know that your business was being well managed? Yeah. And that's why we recommend that young companies invest in corporate governance very quickly because then there is a culture around compliance and transparency that you know while you're on your yacht off the coast of wherever in the world, you would be able to uh, trust uh, the CEO and trust that the employees would also keep the CEO in check um, and that the company was well governed and, and therefore well run. Okay, I like it. You've turned this excellent, fascinating Dubai Works uh, interview into a sales pitch and we didn't even introduce you as an expert in business development but um, no it sounds fascinating Fahim and you know thank you for taking this time uh, during Ramadan to talk about uh, what you're doing and during these unprecedented times uh, and um, yeah wishing you well with your endeavors in the future and um, yeah, all, all the best. Keep doing what you do you guys are fascinating so uh, all the best and speak soon. Thank you take care have a nice day. Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy.